When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I'm Bobby, and I'm your friend who knows just a little bit too much about pop culture. Welcome to your weekly meeting of Pop Culture Fanatics Anonymous. So, last week we did a deep dive into a few different early childhood shows like Sesame Street and Bluey. And this week, I thought we'd take this conversation just one step further. I got a chance to talk to Kristen McGregor, who was an Emmy Award-winning showrunner, writer, and director. She's worked on projects like Blippi's Treehouse, Noggin Nose, Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood, and Sesame Street. Take a listen. Kristen McGregor. I'm a children's media maker. I have um, worked on a ton of amazing shows for kids. Um, everything from writing on Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood to producing segments for Sesame to uh, show running Blippi's Treehouse for Amazon Kids Plus and a ton of amazing stuff in between. I am a writer, a director, a showrunner, and um, this is my life's work. I'm so happy to have you here to chat all things kids media, but I want to start with you. You know, what were some shows that you watched as a kid that were kind of like instrumental to, you know, you beginning this journey of working in children's media? Well, I grew up in Canada, so um, I I have the rare uh, issue of being in the States and people will talk about like 90s Nick shows and I have a blank in there because I did not have um, many of the U.S. shows. Um, but my favorite shows as a kid were Mr. Dress Up. It was a show in Canada. And actually, fun fact, Mr. Rogers was up in Canada filming a short-lived show of his, um, also called Mr. Rogers. Um, and uh, he was friends with Mr. Dress Up. And Mr. Dressup was this incredible show um, for for preschoolers. Basically, the premise was he was a very creative man, and there was a treehouse, and there were two puppets, a, a little boy and a dog that lived in the treehouse, and he would dress up as different things and make crafts, and just it was a really, really great show and a really inspiring show to me. Um, I'm still crafty because of that show. Oh, I love that. It's a very interesting perspective to have like, you know, like kind of internationally, because I'm sure a lot of my listeners are, you know, pretty domestic to the US. But to know that there were so many shows that were very indicative to like a certain region that still have the same effect as, you know, shows that like we grew up with here in the States. So that's awesome. 
it's really interesting to look at children's media in different countries. There's a big festival that happens every two years called Prejeunesse, and we actually get to look at um, different global content. And it is so interesting how different cultures approach children's media. Mm -hmm. It's very cool. Like, oh my gosh, Japanese children's programming is one of my favorite things. If you ever get a chance to check out a show called Design Awe, it's really, really, really cool. Oh, amazing. Okay, I'm gonna have to check that out, especially for yeah. for for the episode and like for research and stuff. So uh, moving a little bit forward in time, like, what made you want to like start the journey of working, you know, on the creative side within like children's media? Like, what was that process like for you? You know, your humble beginnings, like where where did it all start? Yeah, well, so I, I grew up um, in in Alberta, Canada just south of Edmonton. And I always loved shows. Like I, I really like shows, um, watching them. And there was always kind of a, a magical mystery to it because where I grew up was so far away from anywhere in entertainment. Living in Los Angeles now, it's so interesting to hear kids just talk about their friends that are on TV. Um, but we really didn't have any of that. So so I was just kind of attracted to this big mystery. Um, and I loved theater. And when I took a video production course in high school, it kind of all clicked. I, I love kids. I love um, theater. I love um, making stuff. And, and this is, I was lucky enough to kind of figure out what I wanted to do in high school. I just knew I loved television production. Um, so I applied and got into um, Toronto Metropolitan University in Toronto. And there I was able to focus my studies toward children's television. One of my professors was Clive Vandenberg, who actually created a show called Today's Special. And, and I was able to learn a ton from him about children's media. And that it just kind of got even more embedded with me. And I just knew I wanted to to make it my life's work. So, so from there, that's, you know, I started interning on any set I could in, in university and, and really just, um, worked my way up. And my goal was to be a showrunner. And, and I just saw each individual experience working my way up the, you know, the production chain, um, as helpful to, developing a holistic understanding of television production, especially in the world of children's media. And then um, I was working on a show that I just love. It's called Giver. And it's all about kids who build playgrounds to help their communities. And we made it in, in Ontario for TV Ontario with a production company called Sinking Ship Entertainment. And I was you know, running that show. It was really, really fun. And and But I was also at a point in my career where I realized I love children's media production, but I was lacking that education on how kids actually learn. So uh, it inspired me to apply to Teachers College at Columbia University um, for a master's program in cognitive development. And, and, I, and I did my studies in relation to screen-based technology. So like when your teacher is a screen, because so many kids do learn from screen teachers. And that is, you know, a little bit different of, a, of an instructional process than a traditional teacher. Um, so I really found that, that that helped complete my my holistic understanding of things and, and also introduced me to a new country, the US, and, and a new market for, for children's media. Wow, that was 
I don't know. That was just such an inspiring like thing like to hear that you since you were, you know, younger that you kind of knew what you wanted to do and then it just, you know, took shape. That's so amazing. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> what was like what were one of the in kind of like a culture shock way, what have you found that's different between, you know, like Canadian children's media and US children's media and then if you'd like to speak to even beyond that from what you found you know, internationally, like, what are those differences that you see? Um, Any, like, standards across the board? Anything that's, like, glaringly different? One of the differences between Canadian children's media and American children's media, and I will preface this, Canada does a lot of service work for American children's media, so there are many shows that I would consider American that are produced in Canada um, by service companies. Um, but the the shows that originate in Canada versus the U.S., I would say the U.S., U.S. children's media has a lot of polish to it, which, you know, makes it really appealing. And um, these shows are done with probably the biggest budgets on the planet. And also there's just like a whole, it's a very strategic push um, with with American children's media, like to get that holistic, you know, 360 of, okay, great, we've got the toy concept, we've got the show concept, we're going to launch it here, we're going to have this tour, like it's it's very well thought out. But in Canada, I mean, of course, there is that too. And you'll see that. But the thing that's really fun about Canada is the public broadcasting sector. And you'll see shows that are just, you know, where you can see that the broadcasters have really taken a chance. Um, it's not a proven intellectual property. And some of my favorite shows, my, my friends at Lopi Productions in Toronto make a show called My Home, My Life. And it's the series is just going into kids' homes and, and learning about their lives and, and understanding the diversity of the kids around them. So I would say that there is, um, a, that's where you can kind of see, see the differences between, between the two countries. And I will say like around the world, it is so cool. Like, um, thing I love about Japanese children's television is just the aesthetics there. They do shows. Um, some of the most inspiring shows I've seen, obviously design awe, like teaching young children about the concept of design. And there's one called Pythagoras switch. Um, and that one's all about math. And there's like very cool Rube Goldberg uh, shows uh, out of Japan where they make these amazing Rube Goldberg machines. And you wind up cheering for for the Rube Goldberg balls that going through the machine. Um, but then when you look at European children's media, something that's really interesting, especially for teens, is there's a lot of programming about um, sexuality and sex and puberty. And it is stuff that I feel like Americans are more uh, reticent to talk about. Um, so, and also the Europeans are like, well, why? Like, they're so easygoing about that stuff. Um, but it, you know, it probably comes down to the fact that, uh, you know, America was established by Puritans, but, <laughs> you know. So standards are a little bit different for sure. Yeah. Yeah, of course. And it is just so cool. You know, if you, if you want to nerd out, just go to different networks. You can access all of them on the internet and just see what the kids are watching in different countries. Kind of moving more into the nuts and bolts of the thing. So you work more on the, the creative side and you mentioned that you were a writer on Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood. So can you talk to that experience a little bit? Um, and sure. like, how was it writing on that show? 
Oh my gosh. Well, that team is just the best. There's, you know, um, I would say in addition to Daniel Tiger, like I do write a lot of um, animation that is 11 minutes in length. And so Daniel Tiger is one of those. Um, But I will say like, you know, to expand on that, like writing 11 minute animation is really, really fun because you can come up with, you know, silly ideas and just let your imagination go wild. Um, Daniel Tiger is just an incredible show. Like, you know, obviously Angela Santamara, who came up with it, she took Fred Rogers's essence in a way and, and brought it to today's audiences with Daniel Tiger. And the thing I just love about that show is, is it just all the strategies and, and also the thing I love about that show too, is like, you would think that a show that's so soft like that wouldn't have drama, but actually when you watch Daniel Tiger, um, trying to figure out where to go potty outside of his house, like that's drama right there. Like preschool is drama. And it's just so fun to, to kind of find find a, uh, you know, for any of the preschool animation that I write, like, or any of the preschool concepts I write, find a, a speck of truth that, that is relatable to preschoolers and then play on that, like add story structure to that. It's really, really fun. Yeah. You mentioned Angela Santamero and every time I like, I geek out anyone, anytime anyone like ever mentions like Daniel Tiger's neighbor because I'm like do you know that it was co-created by the co-creator of Blue's Clues which was my favorite show as a kid um so I don't know she's a powerhouse she's amazing yes and and I mean if anybody's interested in children's media one thing that I always recommend people do is read her book called Preschool Clues it's it's just a great insight into the industry and it's also great for parents to check out too when when you're trying to decide like what media diet your child is going to have. I find that book is really helpful. Yeah, for sure. So when you're going into like the the creative process of writing 11 minutes for animation for preschoolers, like what is, how do you get into the headspace of writing? You know, like th- each episode like has drama and humor and everything, but it's for a preschool audience. So how do you and like the writing team, how do you approach writing for that very specific, like, you know, demographic? Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's actually funny. Um, There are a lot of uh, things to keep in mind when you're writing for preschoolers. And the main thing is just knowing that your audience hasn't been on the planet that long. Right? So, um, so things that are hard, and I I say hard, like some, some people will say, like, you can't do it. I, you know, I, I think there's a way to make things work if you really, really, really want to. Um, But generally, things that you will not see in preschool television is um, talking about the past or the future. It's usually always set in the present moment um, because it's just hard to hold. Like if you and I are having a conversation and I'm like, oh, yeah, I remember when you did this. You know, it's it's really hard to just kind of hear the words rather than see what happened. So when you when you see any sort of like flashback or flash forward, it's really um, structured for a child's understanding. Um, A thing that happens a lot in preschool content too is everything has a pictorial representation. So it'd be like, you know, if you did want to talk about a moment that happened in the past, it'd be like, yeah, you know, when we talked to Bobby and maybe that's when you hold up the picture of Bobby on your phone or something. Like, 
to just give a, 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 a second clue. If, if a child maybe didn't register the name, we, we can show the face or, um, you know, oh yeah, I'll go get the rake. A kid might not know what a rake is yet, but if you swap that line to got the rake and you hold it up, um, it's a lot more helpful for the audience. So just trying to really think empathetically toward the audience as you're writing. Um, I also think like when, when you're writing is like thinking about the kids and just kind of also remembering when you were a kid, hanging out with kids and just knowing what is resonant for them um, and then making that the story and, and just finding a way to kind of make a story connect. Because my favorite thing when I watch shows for grownups, because I am a grownup, is when I connect with the story and I say, that's like me. You know, I think kids really like feeling like they can identify with the storyline, too. I've always, like, thought that these shows are really, like, the foundation for media literacy, since it's not, like, formally taught here in the U.S., like, these shows are kind of giving those foundational pieces to kids just beyond, you know, like colors and shapes and numbers, like the speaking the language of television, I think is beginning on like the ground floor with these shows. Um, So that attention to detail makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And and I also say like, you know, the thing I love about children's media is I do think it's inherently empathetic because you're always thinking about perspective um, versus opinion, right? Like I can have an opinion. I can think this is really great, but when I'm doing something for kids, you have to stop. Like you can have your opinion, of course, but you also have to have the perspective of, okay, now how would a kid see this? Um, so, so you find that the people in this industry are very, very nice and kind (laughs) because I think it's because they're always thinking about somebody other than their, than themselves, you know? Yeah, for sure. So have there been any shows that you've worked on that are not in the animation space, but are like, you know, live action where you're working with kids? Oh, yes. Well, that is my favorite thing to do. So I've worked with on a ton of shows that are in the live action space. Um, I worked on uh, Blippi's Treehouse, of course, is live action. Um, Sunny Side Up, a uh, live daily show for preschoolers I, I worked on. Um, I've done docu-series for kids and also a really fun one on Noggin called Noggin Nose. Um, where uh, it's like a preschool class, but um, your classmates are the Paw Patrol and the Bubble Guppies characters. That's pretty cool. Um, but a, a lot of the shows that I worked on um, in Canada were actually featured real kids. Um, so give her the playground show. We would have six kids from whatever small town we were building the playground in take part in the episode. Um, I also worked on a show for National Geographic Kids called Are We There Yet? World Adventure, where two kids, we brought two kids around the world and showed them the best of the world and just filmed their reactions. It was really, really fun. What is it like, like working with kids on a set? Because I know like shooting anything takes hours and hours and a lot of like manpower. So what is it like to have talent be, you know, small children? (laughs) I... Love it. And I know some people get really scared about it, but I just love it. Like I, 
I get everybody so excited about it. Like this is, you know, for a crew, um, you know, if a kid's coming to set, I want the kid to know everybody in the room, you know, like, and I want everybody in the room to care about that kid. And I want us to collectively make it this kid's best day ever because we're going to see that on camera. I love working with kids who, uh, you know, don't have a ton of acting experience that are just from, you know, that just, you know, got signed up to be part of the show somehow. I, I love talking to them, hearing their reactions. And I also feel like it's a great way to make sure that we're resonant with the audience too. Like if the kid is not having fun, then that's a indicator that we've got to change something. You mentioned in your in your in your beautiful intro that you <laughs> produced some segments for for Sesame. Can you talk about like that is I think when we're talking about preschool media and we're talking about children's media, people immediately go to Sesame Street and all of its, you know, derivative work. So like what was that experience like for you? Oh my gosh, it was so fun. Um it was a uh, my first thing I made for them was a film about the number 13 and it was just a very sweet simple concept of a, a preschooler packing for her grandma's and she needed 13 things and um I came up with a song too which is really really fun to just kind of develop and and to to produce it all the way through was really really great and just I think the most rewarding thing about that was being able to show my nephew um the show because Sesame Street was his favorite show at the time. And, and it just felt really nice to be like, oh, yeah, Angie made that. And of course, kids never believe that you made anything when you tell them that, which makes you even more humble in this career. <laughs> You're like, no, you didn't. Sesame right. Street made that. <laughs> I'm like, oh, yeah, no, like, no, you didn't write that. Daniel said that like, oh, man, I never get any points. But um. <laughs> But it was just, it was really, really sweet um, to be able to to see him enjoying something I made. That's so, oh my gosh, that just melts my heart. Because oh. I feel like if I ever, you know, like I would love to work in children's media at some point in my career. And I just feel like if I got a chance to show a small child in my life, like, hey, I made this thing. And like, it can have an impact on like millions of other children who may uh, like come across it. I just think that that is, that's just the coolest thing. I don't know. Yeah. Like children's media is like the coolest part of television to me because the impacts of it are just so massive that we don't yes. think that they are but they're just so big they're so big and it's it's why that this job also has a lot of responsibility to it you know mm -hmm. every decision you make is something that kids are gonna see so it's like oh if a you know thinking about like if a girl says this line versus a boy saying this line like how are we it does have such an impact on culture. Yeah. Even though it's it's, you know, some people think it's very tiny. It's it's actually it actually does have a really huge impact on your audience. So I, I like it too because there is that great sense of responsibility in in this mm -hmm. particular medium to to do right by your audience. Speaking of that, so there are just a ton of shows kind of across, you know, like in traditional media with television, but also in the digital space. So like what to you is the mark of a good preschool age show and maybe like a not so good preschool age show? Well, I would say that every show, I, I, I believe that, that if you co-view with your child, you can almost make, you know, you can make a lot of stuff really great. Yeah. Um, 
you know, if it's something that, you know, like for me, I think the right show is a show that meets a child's needs. And so, you know, I don't, I don't know if there is like a bad preschool age show because you, it might be the show that the kid needs at the time. Um, But for me, I really think like a show that listens to preschoolers and keeps them in mind is really important. Like that a show that you see that show and you're thinking they're thinking audience for a show where you see that show and you know that they're thinking audience first. Um, You know, and I also like shows that have a point of view that you can see what they're trying to do and say. And, and, I think a lot of the great shows that, that people really resonate with are, are also parenting shows in a way. Like I do think like Bluey is, is a great example of a parenting show or Caillou. Oh my gosh. I, as a 24 year old grown woman, I love Bluey so much. <laughs> I got very excited seeing her balloon at the Macy's Thanksgiving day parade. Um, so I was just like, oh my God, it's Bluey. Like, I think me and like every preschooler in America was like, oh my gosh, it's Bluey. So yes. <laughs> I, but I, I love that, that concept that like a good preschool age show is also a good parenting show too, because like, I think a show that encourages parents to watch with their kids and not just kind of like plop them down and be like, all right, have fun. Like, you know, the TV's going to watch you for a little bit, I think is it's it's a good thing like it's a really good thing yeah and i also think like um like i mean shows where there there's no parents in them too you can really um do great stuff with your kid too like so i have a friend and and her daughter just loves paw patrol and and i think that that's a like if your kid love love loves a show like asking them like oh, what happened? Like, you know, and then what happened? Oh, wow. Like, you know, trying to get the beginning, middle, end out of them. Um, and also just like asking them big, open-ended questions about the show. Like, what would you do if you had to put up with Mayor Humdinger or, you know, anything like that? Like, just like really showing an interest in what they're drawn to is is a great way into creating great dialogues with your children. Yeah, Totally. So we're we're getting to the end of our convo, but I have a few other questions just to wrap us up. So my first question is like, what is one, I think, like misconception that people have about working in, in preschool age programming, do you think? Oh, I think a misconception, I think a lot of people are like, think it's easy mm-hmm. or they're like, you know, you'll tell people that you work in they're like children's media and they're like that's cute like that it somehow isn't as uh rigorous or or you know meaningful as stuff for grown-ups yeah and so i think that that's a misconception um i think another misconception is that um that you're always with kids and you'll always have kids like running all over the place or working with you. Like, uh, you know, my days with kids, I I don't have many days with kids in in this career. So um, I would say that that's another misconception. And last question. So for all the the parents out there or, you know, people like me who regularly watch Bluey and Blue's Clues and You, uh, what are some shows that you recommend that are on right now? And if there are, you know, like you said, there maybe just a show just may not be the best fit for a kid. Are there shows that you would maybe avoid or like type of programming that you would maybe limit uh, a child's like intake of? 
The thing that is cool about being a parent is that you can be in control of your child's media diet a little bit, at least at first, until they start talking to other kids about what they want to watch. <laughs> um, but uh, but I would say, like, again, like with the shows to avoid, like every kid is going to be drawn to the show that they need in a way. So I would just use that as a as a chance to get curious about what your kids are watching and why they want to watch it. Um, I mean, shows to recommend. I can plug my own shows yeah, <laughs> that are on right sure. now. Um, Noggin Knows on the Noggin app. It's so good. <laughs> Blippi's Treehouse on Amazon Kids Plus. It's so good. Um, my little shows that I love writing on. Ada Twist Scientist on Netflix is incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, Sago Mini Friends on Slumberkins on Apple TV Plus are also so lovely so you will not be you will not be disappointed of course daniel tiger of course sesame um shows that i'm actually really enjoying a lot uh are on youtube kids i love tab time i love coyote peterson coyote peterson will just like go and grab a snake and tell you about a snake like i'm like this is wild um (laughs) and also like you know the the shows i mean i'm gonna feel so bad because i'm i there's so many great shows out there but other shows that are just coming to mind i love bluey of course um molly of denali on pbs is just so great um I love Waffles and Mochi and City of Ghosts on Netflix. Um, and Gabby's Dollhouse on Netflix is so fun too. But I'm just, and now I'm like, oh my gosh, I totally probably forgot some other shows. But like, again, just be curious about what your child wants to watch and 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 ask them questions and be involved in um, their media diet. Co-viewing too, if you can sit with your with your child and watch a show or have a show that you watch together is really, really special and a way to really increase the educational impact. When you're watching that show, try to figure out what the creators of the show are trying to teach your child and then use that as a jumping off point. Um, You know, oh, they made this in the show. Let's make this now. Like finding ways to, to take what you watch and then do something cool next from it. Using the shows as inspiration points for your child is, is a great thing to model. Oh my gosh, this was so, so, so amazing. Kristen, thank you so much for for chatting with me about, you know, all things preschool age programming, uh, your, your, your impact on on everything. It's just so cool to hear about. And uh, I don't know, I'm going to be checking out all of those shows that you mentioned. Um, (laughs) Again, no kids. I have no kids. My brother is literally 17. I am around no small children, but I will be watching this for myself. Well, that's another myth, like, you know, the idea that you need to have kids to to work in this industry or think that this industry is important. Um, you know, I think I'm I really hope, Bobby, that you do work in children's media or, you know, this field needs great people and people who care and you seem to really care about it. So that would be awesome. <laughs> well, thank you so much for, for, for being on. Of course. Thank you for having me. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and the final episode of season three of the afternoon special afternooners. If you don't know, the afternooners is my name for all of us. So if you've made it to the end of this episode, congratulations, you're an afternooner now. 
If you like this episode, don't forget to rate and review this podcast if you had a good time. It helps out the pod. You get to tell me how you're feeling about the pod and I get that sweet hit of praise and validation that is my life force and keeps me going. If you want to know where else to find me on the internet, you can find me at the afternoon special on TikTok or Instagram or over on Twitter at hi, I'm Bobby, H-I-I-M-B-O-B-B-I. And if you're thinking, Bobby, this was a really just riveting conversation and I need to go back and listen to part one and then listen to part two again. I'm not going to remember all of that. Bestie, I get it. And I support that decision. And that is why I've left all of that information in a description box just for you. You're welcome. As you heard, this is the last episode of this season. And y'all, this was a season for the books. Obviously, the biggest change from this season was that I've been working with the amazing team at Q Code. I want to give a big, massive thank you to everyone that helps this show run if it is either pitching ideas, finding guests, or just keeping me sane. Everybody at Q Code has been so amazing and incredible for the season, and I'm so excited to continue to work with them on the podcast in the future. We've brought on some really fun friends this season. We explored some new spaces and pop culture this season, and I have to say I loved every single episode. However, if there were some episodes that I think you should revisit, these would be the ones. First off, the first episode of the season easily has to be my favorite season opener I've done this thus far, which is 1999, a culture shifting year. It was really exciting to just dig my heels so far deep into just one year in 1999 is a fully packed, packed year for, for pop culture. That is one episode that I go back and listen to myself just as a listener. Um, and it's one that I really enjoy. Uh, number two is Armchair Detective, an exploration into true crime. That one was super exciting and fun to do something that's not just film and TV adjacent, but talks about something a little bit broader. And I definitely would love to explore true crime a little bit more in uh, seasons to come. So if you enjoyed that, and I think a lot of people did, I think a lot of people enjoyed hearing a bit of a, uh, a different spin on something pop culture adjacent. And finally, of course, the two-part special, Crazy Vampy Cool, exploring our endless love affair with a vampire was one of my favorite things that I had done this season. First of all, doing a two-part episode uh, was super duper fun, getting to do the more editorial stuff that I love, and then also getting a chance to talk to someone. And for that episode, if you don't remember, I got to talk to the amazing Michael McMillan, who is incredible. And was so much fun. It was such an amazing first guest. Even though this is the last episode of the season, I don't want you to get too sad about it because for the first time between seasons, I'll still be here. I just won't be doing the longer form editorial stuff. It'll be a slightly less formal, but even more fun edition of the afternoon special that I think you guys might enjoy, which may or may not include bringing on some of my friends to chit chat about all things pop culture and literally whatever our two collective brain cells end up thinking of. So I do hope you guys will like that little little shift in content until we bring back the afternoon special podcast for season four. I hope you enjoyed this season and that you'll join me again for another pop culture deep dive. See you in season four and later days, friends. Welcome to a journey into the heart of the Texas Renaissance Festival the nation's largest and rowdiest celebration of medieval fantasy. But what lurks beneath the facade of tights and turkey legs? 
Well, we dove deep into the Empire to uncover a history marred by mystery and misconduct, murders, assaults, and other crimes that tarnish its legacy. This isn't just a fairy tale, it's a cautionary tale of power, fantasy, and the consequences that follow when they all collide. Search for Crime Waves Renaissance Texas on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening now. In the 1970s, John Todd burst onto the evangelical scene with a shocking tale. He claimed to be a former witch involved in a then unheard of secret organization called the Illuminati and urged Christians to prepare for a violent world takeover. First of all, the number one weapon in everybody's home should be a 12-gauge pump shotgun. Hear the amazing story of one of the originators of the modern-day conspiracy theory. From Magnificent Noise and Sony Music Entertainment, this is Cover Up, The Conspiracy Tapes. <laughs> 